Plenty to talk about this afternoon. Cheryl Shaw is in the studio. Uh, something a bit different. Yes, we're going to be talking about silkworms today. <laughs> Incredibly different. And Dr. David. G'day. How G'day. are you, Wayne? Hey, first team's in today. Uh, we're royalty. I know. It's exciting. <laughs> I'm happy to be here. It's a great, great day. Um, this time of the year, we get a lot of questions around uh, from young kids and older kids. How do I get into the industry, whether it's vet nursing or vets or so on? So I thought I might sort of map out a little bit of a pathway for people. So how do you become a vet, Dr. David? Well, to become a veterinarian, there's a fairly defined pathway. You have to go through university and um, achieve a veterinary degree. And although we are seeing a lot of foreign graduates coming into Australia and they have to sit additional examinations before they're allowed to practice and be registered. And the nursing pathway is a little more complex because we have private colleges and private providers and then we've got our government training programs through TAFE and things like that. But basically the benchmark is that uh, veterinary nurses would have a level four or a, sorry, a certificate four in veterinary nursing as, as their sort of standard of achievement. And a lot of people might have a certificate two. There's a big question about what about on the job training and all of the courses actually require people to be uh, enrolled or engaged or employed in a veterinary practice, uh, either in a volunteer status or in a full paid employment status, where they're getting exposure to the activities and the tasks that they're really learning about. And it's very important that they have that on the job training as well. So the big question that we get at this time of the year is, if uh, I'm interested, how do I get involved? Um, and because it's very hard often, you know, there's a great demand for a lot of these uh, places in the training programs and even more so to get volunteer work. And as an employer myself, we do take on work experience and placement, but we encourage people to also get experience in a wide range of activities in the industry. For instance, we have a referral and emergency hospital that really doesn't cover, you know, most of what the industry is about. So I think it's important that if people do want to uh, get into uh, one of these roles that they do a lot of research and find out where do they want to end up and so you know direct their activities towards those areas for instance wildlife there's a lot of opportunity particularly in the hunter for people to get involved in wildlife care and that can be a really rewarding activity uh, there's obviously the shelter side of work which is always in demand and people should uh, you know approach uh, say the RSPCA and so on for opportunities there, although they're exceptionally um, popular. So that's often hard to get into that position as well. Um, a lot of general practice veterinarians will host and take people for work experience or work placement as part of their training. And it's really just getting involved with your local veterinarian or asking around and Unfortunately, there's probably more applicants than positions, so it's a, it's a bit of a struggle at times, but I would encourage people, if they are interested, to talk talk to people in the industry. There's open days. Talk to your local veterinarian. I know when I was thinking of, of getting involved in the industry, I was probably 14 or 15. Uh, that was a long time ago. And um, actually, uh, I, was a, I was a bit lucky, actually, because my uncle owned a dairy farm, and so... Um, I had to work on it, um, not for like bread and water or anything, but actually <laughs> went along there and enjoyed it. Um, but I also went to the local veterinary hospital in Brisbane and 
just really went in there on a Saturday and did four or five hours as a volunteer, cleaning out cages, learning you know, how they hold animals, uh, learning a little bit about the business and learning about working in, in the workplace. Um, overall, I think that stands you in good stead. And I do know that actually one of the universities for vets at least has a requirement that people have that industry involvement before they even apply for a position at the university. So they have an interview. It's not just on your scores. You have to turn up and say, yep, you know, I've, I've been involved. I've done the volunteer work so that you're showing that you've got the passion. And it's the same for veterinary nurses. And when we see people who are interested and they want to get training, then we want to see where that's taking them, where, what are their goals, and, you know, are they able to enrol in a course? And if they can do that and they apply themselves, they'll be successful. And I guess that goes for any any position they look at. So if they're looking for further information on this, is there a particular place that they can go to get that? Um, now, there are a number of places. So the TAFE uh, website has some good information. Uh, if you search through to veterinary nursing on uh, Hunter TAFE. Uh, the other area is the Veterinary Nursing Council of Australia have an excellent section on career pathways and it outlines and maps out you know, how you, you get involved and what the training is at different levels. People can actually go on from that certificate for and get diplomas uh, in different areas of, of types of practice. So it could be surgical, it could be general practice, it could be emergency, dental, uh, practice management. So th th this is all mapped out there. And obviously you've got to start at the beginning. Uh, and if they follow through those processes, they'll hopefully end up where they want to be. We've got uh, Paul on the phone from Charlestown. Hi, Paul. G'day, guys. How are you? We're, we're doing great, Paul. How can we help today? Well, I've got a little problem. I've got three staffies at home, six, seven and eight-year-olds. Now, um, they're not my dogs, they're my sons, and they've lived with us because they acquired them while they lived at home. Since then, they've moved out of home, and one of the sons has taken his dogs with him. Uh -huh. And um, for a period of 12 months, and um, over that time, he's now moved again, and they've had to come back home. And we've got a real problem. He's picked up a storm problem which he never had before. The three of them have run around in storms. It didn't bother them. Now him in particular, he's a ball of absolute fright when the, the storms come. And he's, if he's not got him in contact or he's sitting on top of you or under you, he's tearing the place down trying to get out to find someone. Mm. So, uh, yeah, it's really, really got a hold of him. Um, as soon as it's thunder or lightning, he's a, he's a shocker. He shakes like a leaf. So how long has he been back with you, that dog? He's been back with us now... Um, oh, probably a good twelve months. Okay. He was gone. He was gone for twelve months, and uh, in that period, he's been out in the yard a lot at, at my son's house, and I think you know, he might have had a bit of a bad, a bad um, spot there, and then maybe yep. his lightning struck or something. Whatever it was, it's really got him, and he never used to be a problem. Yeah. Um, yeah, really scary um, because you can't leave him unattended now. He tears the house to bits trying to get out. If he's in, yes. or he'll dig out, or he'll dig out and run away which he never does. I can leave gates open all the time. He won't even wander outside. As soon as that storm comes, yeah. it, it's a It's a very real cause of anxiety in a lot of dogs, and we see it quite commonly. I think that the pattern that you describe is interesting, that they didn't have it before, and I, there's probably a couple of things there. There's um, some... De the anxiety is triggered by the storm, so there could be some underlying uh, load of anxiety for your dog. Uh, or dogs that um, the storms then trigger. It's like there's just more, you know, the straw that broke the camel's back. The other thing 
that could have been happening is that um, while we were younger, they were quite comfortable. They had a bit more human interaction even when storms arrived, and they didn't really have that, oh, you know, here's a storm. It was more like, well, we don't even know what that is. But over the years, um, you know, and I guess we could say maybe storms have got more violent or so on, that uh, over the years that sort of ability to cope uh, with those, the capacity to tolerate the the electrical changes and the noise, and, and um, some people even say that there's uh, dogs are able to sense the barometric pressure Maybe that's actually the, his capacity is just reduced and that's part of the factor as well. Now, none of that really helps you as far as treatment is concerned, but probably gives us a little bit of an insight into what might be going on. So if there are other, trig, other anxiety triggers there, then oftentimes we'll see it with things like separation anxiety. So if you leave the house, they, he may act out some of this behaviour and that could be he's going to be reclusive like he'll just go and hide, uh, and obviously, or he may dig out, as you said, and it's just showing up to a much more extreme example when a storm arrives. And well, in which, if I can just ask you something, yeah. it might help. It's only the one of the three dogs. They're always together. They get on like a house and fire. Never had a day's trouble. They're the best dogs I've ever had. They don't bark. They don't, you know, they're great. But him, just one dog, is who is affected. And if you can leave him at home, you can take off, you can do what you like, and he's never a problem. Good. He never he never gets anxiety problems until that storm hits. Yep. And it's only been since he was you know, relocated and then come back home. But just recently, my son's moved again to a new home where he can have the dogs again, and he took them. And from day one, he has not settled there either. In regardless of storms, if you're not around him, yeah. he will go and dig out and, fight, you know, and run up the street. He doesn't run away for any particular distance, he just goes and sits on someone's veranda, he just doesn't want to be in that new home, yeah. um, which, which is scary because my son's dogs and he wants them, I've got the burden of having the dogs because he just doesn't, he can't live there, he, he won't stay put, he's tore doors to bits and handles to bits trying to get out of the house when they've locked him in, when yes. they've gone out, they put him out in the yard and within half an hour he digs out under the fence and goes and he doesn't do that in my place. That's the sort of behaviour that we see... Um when we start talking about the need for medication and because he's really going to be at risk of harming himself. And the reason we do that is that the medication is designed to actually change the brain chemistry to, yep. it's not going to completely take away the anxiety. It doesn't complete, it doesn't take away the triggers, but what it does is it just doesn't allow it to escalate as much. Um, and usually we have to tailor that with a behavioral modification training, which can sometimes be, um, in the off season, unfortunately, not in summer, we play a CD of storm sounds at ever increasing volume and just reward him when he's calm. And then if he gets anxious, we back it off. Now, that's a fairly intensive program. And you combine that with medication, it's something to sit down and talk with your veterinarian about because otherwise you're going to have a dog running onto the road or they're cutting themselves on you know, when they're digging out and things like that. And I would really encourage that uh, in this case you do need to seek medication for your dog. Good on you, Paul. Thanks for your call today. Thanks, Paul. Nice to talk to you. We've got mm. Donna on the phone from uh, Pelican, and uh, she's got a couple of dogs that are showing some aggressive behaviour. Hi, Donna. Hello, how are you? Hi, Donna. We're doing great. How can we help today? Well, look, I've got two dogs. Mm. They're two years old. Mm-hmm. Um, they're a male and a female. Mm-hmm. Are they de They've had a litter together. Right. But they're so jealous of each other, it is unbelievable. Mm. What are they jealous about? 
um, our contact, yes. anything at all. You know, if um, if one's getting more attention than the other, mm-hmm. um, you know, like we we do allow them, you know, um, in the house and and in the car, and if if the um, if the male gets in the car and we want to shift him from the front seat to the back seat, he gets um, very angry and wants to bite us yeah. if we try to move him. So it's aggression. Uh, it's aggression to each other of the dogs and to people. Yes. Yes. Okay. This this is a this is a scenario we hear far too often, unfortunately. And um, you know they start off their younger dogs, and then you know they like you said, okay. In this case, they've had a litter. Unfortunately, that probably raises the stakes because mum thinks, well, you're a useless male. Um, get out of my way. I've got puppies to raise and. And uh, he's probably just hanging around thinking, well, you know, they're mine, and so I'll just be the boss of the place yeah. now. And so this, yeah. we've set up this relationship that really they're just not not going to see eye to eye on a lot of things, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, but what about what I'm really concerned about is what how it, the, um, the male actually interacts with us because, yes. like, if if I try to shift him off the bed or or my husband tries to shift him off the bed. He gets very, very savage, very, very aggressive. Uh, that That is a real concern. Um, there's a short answer and there's a long answer, and the long answer involves sitting down with a behaviourist and training. And the short answer is you need to desex him. He needs to not be sleeping on the bed. You need to change yeah. change the way that we're feeding them. Uh, so yeah. they, get, they get fed for 15 or 10 minutes of access to food once a day, and that is it. Once that 10 minutes is up, you're picking up the food. They have to sit for their food. We have to re-establish some relationships here. Um, taking desexing him takes testosterone out of his system. It'll just reduce that level of um, aggression that you're seeing. But if we don't do it soon, that behaviour becomes habit. It becomes who he is, and you're going to have a lot of trouble so okay. I know you're having trouble already. Um, yeah. It's just that I wanted to breed them again, <coughs> and so, you know, I wanted to keep him intact. Well, yeah. Mm. in which case you need to have two separate yards for them. Yeah, you know, yeah. So they come together only when they need to do the deed because yeah, I mean, look, you just can't keep them together. Are, yeah, sometimes they're very friendly, you know, like they romp around together all the time. Yeah. But... And certain things. And um, yeah, what happens and is, and it's her who's the aggressive one to start with with him, and then he sort of gets angry. Yes. And decides that well, he's going to take it out on us. Yeah. So what happens with dogs is that whenever there's a limited resource around, and that could be food or it could be attention from someone, it could be who goes through the door first, it could be who sleeps on the bed the highest in the house or outside, who has the favourite space to lie under the tree. That's oh. the that's the limited resource. That's when you get a problem. And so the rest of the time, people say, oh, they get along fine. Well, that's because oh. there's really nothing to argue about. And it's oh, only yeah. only when they get to something that they do need to argue about, they really don't, yeah. you yeah. know, they don't have any rules on how to behave. Yeah. So, so can you recommend a, a behaviourist? I think if you talk with your local veterinarian, first of all, um, yeah. Because and a lot of people will be able to give you some different advice and so on, but you really need to put it all together. Most vets will either refer you to someone, or they have someone in house, or they'll be able to say this is the person who we talk to, 
And uh, then once you've got that connection, that referral, I think you'll be on the right track. And Cheryl Shaw is in the studio, so we've got something a little different today, Cheryl. Yes, we do, Wayne. We're going to be talking about silkworms, which is one of those things that for some people may seem a little bit outside the square, but they're certainly gaining popularity. And we're going to be speaking with Tammy Beasley. She is the resident reptile expert at the Pet Shop Boys, and we'll be talking about silkworms. So welcome to the show, Tammy. Thank you. Now, they're not really a worm, are they? They're a caterpillar. Yeah, they're actually classed as a caterpillar. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the life cycle of the silkworm? Yeah, basically they're, um, they're, they don't have a, a huge life cycle. It's probably around the 55 to 60 days in total and that's from basically from the egg right through till they sort of, you know, moths and lay eggs and, and start the cycle again. So it's a very short life cycle. Yes, and at the moment we're all um, picking our mulberries, so it's quite a nice time to be eating mulberries, looking at the silkworm and seeing what what they've actually left for us. Why are they called silkworms? Basically, uh, the name come from when they first were discovered. They discovered that, like spiders and all the other types of things, a lot do spin a form of silk. However, the silkworm, it's a commercially grade silk. So basically, you know, I'd say they've thought, well, you know, that's the main purpose of that animal. That's what we're going to call it. So because spiders and that, it is a form of silk, but it's not the proper commercial sort of grade like the the silkworm spins. Oh, that's very interesting. And um, why why do people want to keep silkworms? What's their interest in them? Um, I think because the, the, it's an educational thing for kids, it's fun for kids, they're very low maintenance and pretty much no cost. The only cost you've got is travelling around finding mulberry leaves. Um, that's the, the most expensive part. Okay. So, yeah, they're, they're very easy. They don't bite. And it's a great way to know if your kids are sort of wanting to, to get into that animal type of thing, you yes. know, having a pet. Yes, well, I remember growing up having them as children. I used to keep them in a cardboard box under my bed and um, go out and cat, you know, pick the leaves for them and catch more while I was collecting leaves and then spinning the little silk on um, two HB pencils, which was always yep. fun. Yep. But um, <laughs> I think they're a great a great little uh, thing for people to start um, for the first pets, for grandchildren and the like. And certainly we don't have to worry about them being storm phobic or then they're non-aggressive. So uh, a very easy pet to have. Well, Tammy... I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time to, um, to discuss um, silkworms with us today. That's okay and pleasure. Pet of the week, have we got one? Yes, we certainly do. This week we have a cat and our cat's name is Dexter. Actually, Dexter is turning one and they would really like to be able to find a home for Dexter for his first birthday. He's a gorgeous cat, he's black, he's got really beautiful eyes and um, Dexter has just lost his brother Rocky as he was adopted out so he's feeling very lonely and he's looking for his forever home. If you'll be interested in coming to meet with him you can ring Nikki and Nikki will um, introduce you to him. She's also had him under care and Robin has been teaching him some tricks. He can do sit and he can do up so there's a family out there that's needing to um, take on a home. He would be a lovely cat for you. I didn't know that you could teach cats tricks. Oh, you can teach any animal tricks. Is that right? I think they teach us, actually. (laughs) (laughs) I can guarantee that. Okay, and if you want to call on Nikki, you can call Nikki on 0418 
487042. And I think we have a picture of uh, him up on the uh, on the website at the moment, so you can go along and have it's a look. Just He's a black, beautiful looking cat. It's just a black room. Is that what it is? <laughs> with, <laughs> okay. two, with two, two eyes. eyes. I had a black cat once. They're terrific cats, black cats. They do. They mm. spring up on you at night from outside, which is kind of fun to do. When uh, you were going through that Halloween phase. Look, it's Halloween mm, coming up. Mm. Absolutely. That There's would be a, a black, nice thing black to do. Cat. Adopting Halloween? for Halloween. Well, we don't we don't want to uh, uh, encourage people just to adopt a lifelong animal on the basis of what happens next week. <laughs> but they <laughs> well, may be looking nice starting for a, point. Yeah, but they may be looking well. for a new cat, and this gives them an opportunity to go and buy one. I tell you what, if you had Dexter, you'd have the best Halloween cat on the block. You would indeed. Just saying. Very good looking cat. And just yep. a reminder about our two other pets that we've got out at the moment. There, there is a black Burmese cat has been lost in the Merriweather area. And answers to the name of Dante. And if you've lost your rat around Whitebridge, um, David's got it in the garage. His wife picked it up a little earlier today. Silkworms are a, a bit of fun. You had them when you were a kid. I remember having them oh, when I, I was think, a kid. I think everybody of our age had them then. And uh, I didn't. You but I'm, I'm not of your age. Oh, thanks, David. I just needed to hear that. <laughs> yeah, I do years. look like I am. Yeah, you do. You do. I was going to say two or three no, years. Cheryl looks a much. lot younger. That's what I'm saying. Oh, oh very good. <laughs> very good. I thought you got out of that quite well. So some of the things that you feed silkworms, if you've got them, so you can feed them mulberry leaves. That's right. And we've had a listener ring in to say that um, you can actually feed them beetroot, and beetroot will help the silk to come out colour red. So that's an interesting go. thing. You need an awful lot of silkworms, however, if you want to make yourself anything. A jacket. You know, a tie. Mm. I was only, you know, a tie. A I'm starting small. Start out small. Handkerchief. Handkerchief. Yeah. A cravat. And you can you can spin the, the silk That's on a right. couple of pencils. Absolutely. I remember doing it, just yeah. twirling those pencils and away the silk comes away, those threads. I don't actually recall what we ever did with it. We must have, you know, binned it or something. I think pr- that's pretty much where it went at my house. I think my mother threw it out. And I don't actually remember ever getting past the second generation of silkworms. <laughs> I think, you know, once they get become moss or gone, that was it. That was the end of the silkworm experiment. So not not a successful breeding effort. No, no, oh, I didn't do well with mind. it at all. Now, summer yes. is here at the moment. We've had a couple of huge storms it recently. It feels like summer, doesn't it? Yeah, it does, yeah. Um, certainly with the storm activity that we've had. Uh, and we are into storm season, so you've got to be careful with pets, etc. at the moment. And we know that snakes and fleas are out around the place as well. Snakes and ticks and, and fleas, ticks. yes. And so um, yeah, we uh, just recently looked at our numbers of patients that we saw with various types of poisonings and snakes and ticks are up 15% compared to September last year and I I hasten to add is that October seems to be similarly busy and interestingly uh, seeing the uh, large snake that was released and shown in the Herald today was on the news last night and the the handler said his thoughts were that actually habitat loss was increasing the interaction between these animals and uh, people and I think we see that as well with uh, when people report to us where they're coming from and we actually map out the various areas that we see with snake bites Um, and of course the other thing is I always think is that as soon as daylight saving hits you get home from work it's five o'clock six o'clock and the sun's still out but it's you know the weather's nice take the dog for a walk so you go down the park or uh, through a bush track so there's that just that increased interaction happening all the time and so we would warn people just to be cautious and obviously if you come across a snake that's a bit difficult if you've got a dog except to just slowly back away and um, move away from the snake because 
generally snakes aren't aggressive in that sense except that to defend themselves so if they feel cornered yes they they can strike and so on uh, but you need to give them the space to move away and generally if you do that you just stay still and and or walk away or walk backwards slowly keeping them in sight you should be okay um, with the ticks now we're seeing heaps and heaps of patients with tick poisoning no matter what preventative that you use it's worthwhile and actually recommended is to search your pet every day particularly again if you're out in the um, bush or parkland it doesn't require you to go out to scrub it's pretty much anywhere on the coastal or um, lakeside suburbs is where we're really seeing the the predominant cases and patients coming from. All right, be vigilant is the one thing to Absolutely. make sure that your eyes are with your pets. Cheryl and David, thank you for that. Thanks, Wayne. We'll do it again next week here on 2NURFM Pet Chat.